the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Uh, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You know, God has a purpose for every one of us. And I pray that you're lit up right now about this time of year, about this season, in spite of everything. Uh, if there's a people that need to be illuminated uh, and illuminating others, it's us. I mean, we really do need to see, people need to see the glory of God shining through our life. This coming Sunday, uh, next week, after, right after Thanksgiving, perfect timing, we're going to be having our, our fifth Sunday celebration. We'll gather here at 9 o'clock. you want to be here for that. Uh, Lord willing, Alex Chippy will be here at 9 to preach, and then at, at 1030, uh, Jim Boyette's going to give an address. So you want to be here to hear Jim before we take the Lord's Supper, uh, if he's uh, up and able. And uh, if not, we have an alternative plan, so uh, don't sweat it. Either way, 9 o'clock, we have a message here. 1030, we got a message here, and they're all going to be dealing with God's heart for the church and God's heart for the world, and we're excited about that. Uh, and I'm excited about the opportunity for us just to not only individually but collectively be right with God because it's a great value at a time like this when there's a lot of angst, there's a lot of anxiety in a culture that we live in. It's a great opportunity to really shine the light of Christ. And what's interesting about that is that the book of Malachi is like the last opportunity to hear a prophet and the word of God that, that's canonized. It's the last book in your, in your, in your uh, Old Testament so it's easy to find, right? If you can't find it, you just go to, to Matthew and flip back one book, and bam, it's the last book in the Old Testament. It's the last word. It's like the lights go off, boom, and you don't see the light again until Jesus Christ appears in his birth. And, of course, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And so Malachi is the last word of God before the light goes out for approximately 400 years as the, as the world prepares for the advent of Christ, which we'll also be celebrating here in just a, a little over a month. And, and the light of the world is uh, manifest to all. So if you're saved this morning, uh, you are, you're a light. You are a messenger. You are a beacon. Now, some of us uh, may be a brighter beacon than others, right? Some may be like the little bitty Christmas bulb. Uh, some may be like a big, bright, you know, halogen. But nonetheless, we're all shining if you're born again in some way, shape, or form. And by God's grace, the gospel is not hid in our life. Because if it is hid, we know that it is hid to them that are lost. Now, Malachi, like us, may be the last opportunity for some people to hear the gospel before the coming of the Lord in the coming time of trouble. Have you ever thought about that? What if you're the last person someone gets to hear the gospel from before the catching away of the church? Man, that's kind of crazy. But the Lord is promising he's going to catch us away. He's going to take us out. He's promised it throughout the Old Testament. He's He's mentioned the time of trouble and the tribulation to Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel, Malachi. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24 and other places all through the Gospels. Paul speaks of it. John spoke of it. God gave him the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we, we really know all about this. We know what's coming. But oftentimes we don't really think about it in that context. It's like we are Malachi. We're the messengers of the Gospel of grace until uh, the light goes out for a season, for seven years. And Jesus then returns, the Son of Righteousness arises with healing in his wings. At the end of Malachi, chapter 4, that's a prophecy. So I pray the introduction to Malachi this morning. This will just be an introductory message. I gave you a sheet with lots of blanks because I'm going to be flying over a lot of information. But I pray that it's, uh, it's edifying and it's encouraging. And it's also preparatory for preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper. So if you have your Bible, look at Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, this isn't going to be a long read. And so... Uh, we're just going to read verse 1 together right now. It says, The burden 
of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ for this burden that was placed upon your messenger Malachi. It was your word to your people uh, in your time. Heavenly Father, I pray God a blessing on the reading and the hearing of your word today. I pray God you would introduce us to this book and help us to understand why it's so important to our life today over 2,400 years later approximately. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, this is a title. If you were going to title this thing, I titled it Choosing to Love the Lord. As a whole, when you go through the book of Malachi, what we're dealing with is a love relationship. Uh, God loves the world, but he also loves Israel. He gave Israel, he has a special place and promises for Israel. I'll dig into that deeper in the weeks ahead. But for this morning, I just want you to know that all the way through the book of Malachi, you're dealing with this issue that Israel has to choose to love God or choose not to love God. It's on them. Uh, they, they get the opportunity, and God gives them ample opportunity, as he does us. And so by way of introduction, I want to do an introduction to the messenger. Because uh, God sent a messenger because he wanted Israel to choose to love the Lord. He wanted them to choose him. And so there's an introduction to the ma- messenger in Malachi chapter 1, and verse 1, we just read it. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now that word Lord... We'll look at it later in other weeks, but it's mentioned, I believe, 49 times in the book of Malachi. It is a prominent word in the book of Malachi because that's the one thing, that's the one issue that's lacking in the nation of Israel's life. They don't really, they don't submit to the Lord as Lord, right? They're, they're dealing with issues of the heart that are hindering them from submission. Before I get into all that, though, I just want to talk about the author, Malachi. There's not a lot to say, frankly. Uh, the, the only mention of his name is in verse 1. And, 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 of course, we know it's the title. Some of us call it Malachi, but we're just kidding. Um, and his name, his name means messenger, right? So that's, that's it. It's not that fancy. It means messenger, but it's kind of a cool name. Uh, he is the only anonymous author of a book in the Bible. Most of the book authors, or all of them, but Malachi, have a biography. You can trace them down. You, you know what, who they are. You know a little bit about their historical background. Malachi is just... Well, he is what he is. He's a messenger. And would to God, that's who we would be, right? Uh, just a messenger. Now, obviously, uh, God uh, knows all about him, but we're not given all that information. So he's, he's an anonymous uh, person. It's assumed that he's a Levite, but we really don't know. And God gives us no record of his personality, only his function, just what he does. And what he does is deliver a message. And uh, would to God, that would be us. So what we do know about Malachi is that he took the burden of the word of the Lord seriously, right? He, he unlike many of his generation, took what God said uh, to heart, and he also communicated it in a way and recorded it in a way in which it could be preserved. And that was God's obvious divine hand, both inspiration and preservation in the life of Malachi. And so the historical context of Malachi is uh, very interesting as well. It's, it's really hard to get your head around all of this if you don't really understand where it fits in the whole of the Bible. So this is called a post-exilic book. And that's because, you know, that costs 50 cents to learn words like that, right? So what that means is it's just after the, it's after the exile. So Israel was taken into captivity in 606 B.C. because of rebellion and disobedience. Uh, Babylon, after the Assyrian captivity, which preceded that, then uh, Babylon came in. Uh, and they took Israel into uh, uh, Babylon. They literally uh, des- destroyed the temple, uh, you know, took everybody in. That's where we get the book of Daniel. And, 
And so God uh, had Israel in captivity for 70 years. And after that, God delivered them back. Um, uh, he basically punished them for all the Sabbaths they had violated. And then he promised that he would put them back, and they did. And so they go back under Ezra. And so uh, all of that is prophesied, recorded in the Old Testament, and it, it happened just the way God said. In 536, uh, God, uh, through Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, allowed them to go back. And then uh, just after that uh, was the ministry of this man uh, who uh, was a contemporary of Ezra named Nehemiah. And the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, 24 of Daniel's 70th week or 70 weeks is broke down for us in Daniel 9, 25. I'm not going to get into all of that today uh, in detail, but it took seven weeks or 49 years to restore the temple from the time of Cyrus and Ezra in Ezra chapter 1 until the time of Nehemiah when there's a decree uh, to go forth and rebuild the walls uh, in 445 B.C. in fulfillment of Daniel 9.25. So in Nehemiah 10, uh, is, uh, Nehemiah is focused on uh, after the walls are built, everything's in order. Uh, you know, Ezra came in and established the, the priesthood and then, then came, comes in, he was the ready scribe, and then uh, later on Nehemiah comes in, they, they rebuild the, the walls and uh, take the reproach away from Israel. And you find kind of a revival happening as both Ezra and Nehemiah kind of, they, 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 they come together in the book of Nehemiah chapter 10. So I, w- I want you to turn back. You have to go back before Psalms and, and, uh, and Job, and then you'll hit, um, if you're, you'll hit Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So if you get to Esther, go back a little bit further. You should hit Nehemiah. And we're not going to run through everything in, in uh, Nehemiah this morning, but I just want you to look at chapter 10 as there's a book named uh, after Nehemiah as well. You know a lot more about him and his history. He was um, working as a cupbearer in the king's court, and he took leave to go to Jerusalem. So he visited Jerusalem, <clears throat> uh, we know from the decrees, he, in 445, and then they rebuilt the walls. And, and Nehemiah visited Jerusalem about a decade later. Uh, in Nehemiah 13 and verse 6, there's another decree made. And he goes and he, and he visits Israel once again, and they're backslid. And he finds the people of Israel in disobedience. And in Numbers 13, Malachi was likely uh, preaching during the time uh, after the second visit of Nehemiah, around that period. And it was the last word, as I've mentioned, until the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be born uh, some 400 years later. God goes silent after Malachi until John the Baptist appears and preaches in the wilderness and, of course, the manifestation of Jesus in his public ministry. So we see why Malachi was burdened uh, by the word of the Lord for Israel. In, in Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 13, it reveals events leading up to the preaching and the writing of, Ma- of Malachi, the messenger. So just contextually, the temple is rebuilt, worship is restored, the walls are built, and Israel is a nation free to return to worship and service to the Lord. So Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 10, you see, if you look down there, you see this long list of names, so that'll put you to sleep on a Sunday morning, I'm sure. I'm not going to read through all those right now, uh, but I want you to look at verse 28, uh, and this section of, <clears throat> of Nehemiah. And so here there's an accounting of, of the leadership, and then in verse 10, uh, somewhat of a revival breaks out as Nehemiah and Ezra offer an opportunity here for the people to... Um, really engage with God's will. And it says, And the rest of the people, right, not, not just those listed, uh, which would include the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, Nethanims are, are servants, 
and all that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God. So these people made a decision. You know, we are God's people, and we are going to follow God's word. That was the decision they made, and they were, they were sticking to it. And it was a good decision. <clears throat> and, and part of that was that uh, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, it wasn't just the men, it was the whole family unit. Everybody in the family was following God together. They all understood the rules of engagement were the word of God. Amen. Is that the way it is in our house? You know what? I hope it is, but it really isn't always that way, is it? Now, that's something we can apply right now. That's, a weird, that's, that's something we ought to be doing in our homes today. You're getting some pushback from the world, the flesh, and the devil, I know. But you know what? That doesn't mean we shouldn't be committed to that. In verse 29, it says, They clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes. So they make a decision that, you know what, we're going to publicly make a, you notice it says a curse, but it's also an oath. It's like a pledge. It's like we are going to follow God's word. I'm in my personal reading. I'm in the book. I just read through Deuteronomy, and I'm also now in, jo- in Joshua. And you hear this, fr- this comes up over and over again. God is saying, hey, there's my word. Are you going to do it? And if you're going to do it, right, this is something I'm going to bless you by. But it's also, he's got a long list of curses if you don't do it. And so we do need to take the word of the Lord seriously. You know, oftentimes people uh, are like, they look at salvation like, oh, it's just fire insurance. Well, no, it's not. Uh, God owns you. If you're truly born again, he owns you. Uh, And so you're his. Now, how are you dealing with that? Is your life going to be a blessing or is it going to be a curse? Is he going to get glory from your life? Uh, he will get glory from your life. Uh, but is it, going to be a, uh, is it going to be because you're a vessel of honor or is it going to be because you're a vessel of dishonor? Right? There are some vessels in your house that are honorable. Right? If you come to my house, I'm going to say, hey, here's a nice clean glass of water. and I'll, That's an honorable vessel. It's clean and you can drink from it. I'm not going to ask you, you know, my dog, I'm like, it's gross. Don't go drink out of the toilet. No, that's gross. That's a dishonorable vessel. They're both useful. They're both useful in my house. But one is honorable, and, I, and I'll let you drink from that. The other one, not so honorable. And dogs drink from that stuff. I don't understand. Like, have you, I've never seen a dog. I've got a dog problem. I'm like, keep the lid down. This dog is gross. It wants to go drink out of the toilet. But anyway... Does that gross you out? Yes. Okay, I think you got the analogy, right? There's vessels of dishonor that you really use for one purpose. It's not really honorable, but it's useful. And then there's vessels of honor, vessels that you would let people drink from. Holy vessels, clean vessels. And so God wanted Israel to be vessels of honor, but unfortunately they kept choosing to be vessels of dishonor. And they, they promised uh, in this part of the, of the book of, of of Nehemiah, they're in a position where there's revival breaking out. They promise to repent of giving daughters and sons to marry um, Hebrew children and having mixed marriages. They said, you know what, we're done with the mixed marriages in, in, in verse 30. And they went and they would not get, and we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. That was one of the problems that they had had up to that point. In spite of all that God had done to restore them in the land, uh, they had gone to to cohabiting and mixing with the people of the land, uh, they, were not, uh, they were not God's people. They were pagans. And that was explicitly forbidden, just like today in the New Testament, right? Christians are to marry Christians. They're not to be unequally yoked. So they promised to observe the Sabbath as well in verse uh, 31. 
It says, and if the people and the, and the land bring ware and vessel and victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. And so they return. They reset to the Sabbath years. They let people get their property back. They reset the economy the way they're supposed to. They're like, hey, we're not doing any business on Saturday on the Sabbath we're going to honor the Lord's Day, the seventh day of the week, and all of that. I mean, they're like doing it by the letter of the law because they spent 70 years in captivity. Right? They learned the hard way. This is not what we want to do. And it kind of reminds us of, well, the blue laws. Remember the blue laws? How many of you can remember blue laws? Okay, about half of you. Half of you are like, what is the blue law? You'll have to ask someone to raise their hand. But uh, those went away when I was a kid uh, for the most part. But we even used to do that on Sundays in the United States once upon a time. I'm not necessarily advocating we go back to that. I'm just saying... Uh, it was a cultural thing for the nation of Israel. And they promised to start giving to the Lord. In, in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 32, uh, now they're, they say, you know what, we're even going to give back to the Lord. In verse 32, it says, Also, we made ordinances for us to change ourselves, uh, or I'm sorry, to charge ourselves uh, uh, yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread and for the continual meat offering and for the continual burnt offering of the Sabbaths, of the new moons for the set feast and for the holy things and for the sin offerings and to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of God. And so we see here in Nehemiah 10, uh, 32 through 33, that they said, you know, we're going we're gonna to set stuff aside for God. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start supporting the work of God, the house of God. In Nehemiah 10, 35, it goes on to say, and, and they bring the first fruits of, of our ground and the first fruits of all of the trees year by year under the house of the Lord. So they were given the first fruits of what God had given them, which is what we do as well, isn't it? Also, the firstborn of our sons, right? They, they, they would dedicate their sons just as they did Jesus. Remember when they took him to the temple and they gave two turtle doves, which was a, a, a sacrifice that was in the law for the firstborn, or for, yeah, for the firstborn, but for the male son. And, and they say, not only are we going to give, uh, you know, also the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstlings of the herds and our flocks to bring to the house of God unto the priest to minister to the house of God. They're like, you know what, everything we get, all the increase, when we get an increase, we're going to give the first fruits. Whether it's the fruit of the womb, it's the Lord's reward, we're going to go make an offering for that according to the law. When I get a calf, you know, I'm going to offer the firstlings of the flock, I'm going to dedicate a portion, right? They're just giving their first fruits. They're doing exactly what the law says. And when you do that, God will bless it. So that's what he was going to do. They were excited about it. It was, it was an exciting time of revival. It was a great time. Israel's act like they're in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, they are, man, they are cooking with gas. They're like, Lord, just, we're just going to do what you told us to do. We recognize, we're thankful uh, that you have brought us in the promised land. We're thankful that We've got the word of God. We're thankful that we got the priesthood. We're thankful that we got the sacrifices back in business, which, by the way, through much trouble. Uh, and we're thankful that we're able to, to worship you. We're just thankful. So we're just going to do what we're supposed to do. We're going to love you. We're going to obey you. But you know what? It didn't last very long. And so, you know, Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 5, just like the church, he says, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? No one was making those guys, twisting their arm behind their back to make this covenant. This was a free will offering. They were making a deal with God. They were saying, God, we're following you. And this persuasion, Paul says, cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But somewhere, a little leaven got involved. 
and they started going astray, just like we do. Like the old hymn says, prone, uh, Lord, I feel it. How's that go? Prone to leave the God I love, right? And, and that's a good lyric. Lord, take my heart and seal it. Seal it in thy courts above. Um, man, I can't trust myself with my own heart. We've got to trust the Lord with our hearts. Because if there's anything that we, we, un- we should understand about our hearts, they're deceitful and desperately wicked. That's why when we get saved, God gives us a new heart. And we've got to make sure that, that our hearts stay right with the Lord because that's the last thing the devil wants us to do is, is serve the Lord with a pure heart. He wants to defile that thing. He wants to give us heart disease, spiritual heart disease. And that's what happened to Israel. It wasn't long before apathy set back in and apostasy began to creep over the nation once again. And Nehemiah returns in Nehemiah 13. So just go over a couple chapters. And, and many of you know number 13, the number of rebellion. Um, this is around 433 B.C., I believe. And, and so Nehemiah shows up and he finds the Jews had allowed unbelievers. Man, they, they, they're living in the temple. I mean, what in the world? Uh, if you look down at chapter, uh, chapter 13 and verse 6, Nehemiah says, But, but <clears throat> all this time was I not, not I at Jerusalem, for in two and thirtieth year of, Ar- uh, of Arxerxes, the king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained uh, I a leave of the king, and I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashab, who's he? He's the high priest. Uh, he's a contemporary with Zerubbabel. Eliashab did to Tobiah. Well, who's Tobiah? Well, he's an Ammonite, enemy of Israel. If you were to go back and read Nehemiah chapter 2, this dude is working against Israel the entire time. He doesn't want them to build the walls. He doesn't want them to establish a presence there. It's sort of like today, right? People don't want Israel to have their capital in Jerusalem, and there are all kinds of people surrounding them, trying to stop them both within and without. That's who Nehemiah rolls up, and he's like, he, he comes to, to the temple, and he's like, What's Tobiah doing here? And, and the high priest, Eliashib, what are you doing? Why did you let, what, you got the, this guy's got an office in the temple. What are you doing? And so he didn't take that very well. And uh, he goes and he throws him out. Nehemiah tosses him out. And then Nehemiah rebuked them because he finds out they're not tithing. In verse 10 it says, And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, for the Levites and the singers did the work. And, and, uh, and were fled, everyone to his field. And so he's, he realizes that something's going on economically in the temple. Things aren't working well. The Levites and the singers that are supposed to be there um, worshiping God, they've all had to take other jobs out in the field. And so he's like, well, I guess they're not bringing the tithes from the, into the storehouse. And then, and then Nehemiah contended with the, the rulers and rebuked them. Uh, for not attending to the temple, in verse 11. And then contended I with the rulers, and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and set them in their place. He didn't want to tangle with Nehemiah. Uh, totally, you talk about a type A, this guy's it. So he's like, hey, what are you doing? And he puts them in their place. Uh, so nothing new under the sun there. Nehemiah contended with the nobles as well. He wasn't scared of nobody. In verse 17, then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do, and profane the Sabbath day? You, told, you, you made a covenant with God, now it's a curse, because you're not obeying what you said you would do. You're, you're profaning the Sabbath day. You're using it for a day of merchandise. Nehemiah testified against their breaking of the Sabbath in verse 17 as well. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? And then he testified against them for selling on the Sabbath. In verse 21, 
Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And he wasn't going to pray over them, I promise you that. For, for that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. They may not have feared God, but they certainly feared Nehemiah when he showed up. And he's like, man, you guys are messing this thing all up. And then Nehemiah testifies against them for continuing to have mixed marriages. They had already said in chapter 10 this wasn't going to go on anymore, but it was going on. It says in verse 23, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod and Ammon and of Moab, and their children spake half the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them, he wasn't very politically correct, and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. Quit it! You shall, now, obviously, that was a, that's a kingdom of heaven context. It doesn't mean we can't marry people of other nations and so on and so forth in the church age. But they should be in the Lord, right? They should be brothers and sisters in Christ. And they should be of the opposite sex, just to be clear about that as well. And there's a lot of other things that should be common sense that aren't any longer. Okay, so you shall not give your daughters nor your sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons for yourselves. He goes on to say, did not Solomon, verse 26, king of Israel, sin by these things, right? Didn't he take so many wives on that it took his heart away and, he, and it disrupted the whole nation of Israel? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. What are you doing, he says? What in the world are we doing? Israel, why are we allowing this to go on? You know, many today ignore the same, same promises, the same curses, right? The same blessings and curses. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, be not equally yoked together with unbelievers. And some of you could give testimony to how painful that can be. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells you, if you're loose, seek not to be bound, right? You need to be married only in the Lord, in the Lord. Nehemiah ran off corruptible leadership too in verse 28 of the same text of chapter 13 he says and one of the sons of Jediah uh, uh, or Jioda how do you say that Jodah Joida Joida it's your guess as good as mine the son of Eliashab the high priest was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite therefore I chased him from me so he chased this guy off he's like you know what uh, I don't care whose son he is the high priest's son I'm chasing him out of here uh, because his son-in-law was Sam Ballot. And if you know anything about Sam Ballot, Tobiah, those two rascals did everything they could to stop the forward progress of God. Why would you want to marry your family into them? Nehemiah doesn't understand it. He runs them out of there. Um, and so Nehemiah leaves Israel uh, in a situation with things in order. Now check this out. He purifies the temple and restored worship as God intended again. And as we end chapter 13, he says, Thus cleansed I them from all strangers, and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed, and for firstfruits, remember me, O my God, for good. He's like, God, I did everything I could do. The only thing that Nehemiah couldn't do is change their heart. He could order everything. He could set everything up. He could put everybody in their place. He could, he could run off the bad people. He could get everything in order. But what he couldn't do, he could, he could organize all kinds of things. 
But he couldn't change someone's heart. That's a choice. That's a choice that the, the nation of Israel had to make. He leaves them in good order, but it isn't very many years. I don't really know exactly how many years, probably a decade, maybe two decades. Probably, I don't know. There's a lot of speculation, so I'm not going to speculate. But definitely we know that Malachi preached to the nation of Israel over the same exact things, not 10 years, 20 years later. And then by 590, or 395, there's a book of Malachi, the last book written, and the lights go out on Israel until Jesus comes. So let me give you an overview of the book of Malachi. God doesn't, <clears throat> doesn't identify Malachi because, well, he didn't want to. If he wanted to, he would have, right? He didn't want to. He didn't identify Malachi because that, that wasn't something that, that he really wanted to do. He wanted this message to come straight from him. And they've not, they've not heeded the, the ready scribe of Ezra. They didn't listen to the royal cupbearer, Nehemiah. So now God chooses um, to close the canon with a faithful messenger to give final instructions before he turns the lights out on Israel in those years of silence. So what I, I want to just kind of give you a flyover because uh, this is a short book. It's not going to take us a whole lot of time to get through it. In Malachi chapter 1, what we see is God's complaint. He opens the book with a complaint. Really, the whole series is a bunch of complaints and them going back and forth. He is brokenhearted over Israel's disobedience. His heart is broke. He says in verse 2, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? It's like Paul, right? Writing the Corinthians. He's like, the more I love you, the less you love me. Right? The more I love you, the, the less I'm loved. God's like, I've loved you. What are you saying? And what do you, what do you mean, wherein hast thou loved us? He, goes, he uses Esau and Jacob uh, as an example. He, go, go, he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob. I chose you over Esau. All of y'all came from Jacob, he says, to the nation of Israel. I loved you for sure. The children of Israel are questioning God's love. After all, he has done to restore them and establish worship after their return you ever find yourself questioning the love of god you know when we do that it's usually when things are not going well or things are going so well we forget god you know success is often harder to deal with than failure oftentimes failure failure will cause you to look for christ sometimes success your heart will get full of itself or start to drift after other things success is sometimes harder than failure but israel was in a situation where they're like kind of jaded they're like man this Jesus thing ain't working for me. Of course, they didn't know Jesus yet. This Jehovah thing ain't working for us. He's like, what are you talking about? It isn't working. You wouldn't be here. I, I love you guys. Why don't you love me back? He's asking. And then in chapter 2, he gives a command. And he commands the priests. And God speaks to them and, and lets them know that they need to repent and serve him with a contrite heart because they are accountable for the flock of God. And so in chapter 2 of Malachi, you can look down there at verses 1 and 2. He says, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. No question about it. If ye will not hear, and if ye will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And, and <clears throat> uh, yea, I have cursed them already, because ye do not lay it to, to where? To heart. This is a matter of the heart. This isn't about knowing what to do. This isn't even about ordering things the way they need to be ordered. This is an issue of God calling people to say, Give me your heart! Because I'm not, I've limited myself. I want you to choose. 
Because love, that's how love operates. It's a choice. Oh, God wants them to love him back. And then in Malachi chapter 3, God, God, you can see God's promise. God will keep his promise to Israel in spite of their disobedience and rebellion. And I'm not going to read all these for time's sake, but in verses 1 through 5 of chapter, C, there's a, there, of chapter 3, uh, there's a promise of his coming. He's like, I'm promising you, I'm coming. Be ready. Aren't we to be ready today? Sometimes, is it, don't you kind of forget that, oh, maybe he's going to come, maybe he's not. Hey, that's a lot like the people during Malachi's day. Malachi 3, 7, he talks about the promise of his mercy. In spite of everything that's happened, man, God is still a God of mercy. And then in verses 8 through 12, he gives a, a promise of his protection. In spite of themselves, God's going to protect his promises. He's going to protect his people. And then lastly, in verses 13 through 18, he deals with the, those that would be faithful. And he talks about uh, both well, those who will be faithful and those who won't be. And he deals with justice. And I tell you what, uh, God's the only true just judge. You know, everybody, I, came, I had a revelation several months ago. Every, when social justice started, you know, being a popular thing, I thought, you know, everybody wants justice, right? Until they're being judged, then they want mercy. Everybody wants justice until they're the one being judged. Then you and I, we all need mercy, don't we? Man, praise God. God is just. But he's also, man, he's merciful and he's a protector. But he don't play with him either. He's not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And then the fourth chapter, Malachi 4, we see God's prophecy. God's prophecy. And, and, and he promises his return in verse 1. And many of us are familiar with that very familiar passage. I quote it a lot just off the top of my head. For behold, the day cometh, saith, uh, or cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall uh, burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And then he says in verse 2, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. What an incredible promise of his return. And then the promise of his judgment, both to those that are awaiting his return and those that are not wanting his return. And then it deals with the promised people in verse 4, and then the promised prophet. The last thing he says is, hey, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. And so he's making promises all the way through chapters 3 and 4. He loves his people in, verses, in chapters uh, 1 and 2, and then he makes promises in chapters 3 and 4. And man, he wants, he wants them to understand, I, hey, you may not keep your word, but I'm going to keep my word. Isn't that awesome about God? How many times do you, you break, well, they didn't keep the promise, so I'm not keeping mine. All right, that's not how God rolls. You know why? Because he's so much better than us. He just, he loves us. He wants us to do the right thing. So let me talk to you quickly about Malachi's significance. You see, God's last words before God goes silent come through this prophet. That's significant. It's also significant because there's several events that take place. It's not that nothing is happening in the life of Israel, just sort of like the time of Esther. You don't see God written in the book of Esther, but God is working behind the scenes, right? He's, he's bringing things together for God's people. The same thing is going on. Even though God goes silent, that doesn't mean he's not working. That's profitable for us to understand as well. There's times in your life you're like, man, I'm not hearing from God. I'm not getting that, that same old feeling. I've lost that loving feeling. Don't, that doesn't mean God's not working. God's, God's working. Israel gained independence and was zealous for a season. She established her place among the nations for a short season until the rise of the Roman Empire. 
uh, the Maccabee family fought to the death, liberating Israel from the clutches of foreign dominion. Some things happened during this time of silence. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes' uh, systems were developed as we see them in the advent of Christ in the Gospels in the book of Acts during this season. The nation of Israel progressed through three major Gentile powers prophesied in Daniel 2, 36 through uh, 45. How about that? In the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, in that silent period, at the end of the silent period, they go through Persia, they go through Greece, they go through Rome. I mean, they pick up some big, big chunks of Gentile power in that short season. And uh, those powers are still wrangling today. The canon of the Hebrew Bible was compiled with Genesis, opening uh, Second Chronicles and closing, opening in Genesis, I should say, and closing in Second Chronicles. So I put a slide together. And you can see that, that uh, it, this is the book into the Old Testament. The last thing that you will see is Second Chronicles. Um, what is that verse? Second, go back to that. I need that because I don't have it in my notes. 3623 there. The last verse of the Bible, thank you. You're very kind and generous. Uh, there, it says, go up, go up. Right? God is telling them to this day, a Jew, the last thing they're going to read in their Bibles, go back to Jerusalem, go home. And today they can go home because of what God has done in recent times, 1918, 1948, 1967. And, so, and actually just uh, 19, or 2018, right? They just moved their capital to uh, Jerusalem. So that's a huge prophetic event, and that's going to have some implications as well. So they saw Alexander the Great instrumental in establishing the Koine Greek as a standard for language in the world, which, of course, uh, made way uh, after the first century for the Bible to be translated into the Greek. It was in the Hebrew and Aramaic as well, and God brought all that together for our King James Bible, the authorized version in 1611. The world was being prepared for the light of God's word to come. It wasn't even though God was silent, God was still working. He was preparing the world for the coming of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, even if things get crazy and things, you feel like, man, we can't do what we used to. It ain't the way it used to be. I guarantee you, God's working. You hang on to the promises of God. You take care of the things God's told you to take care of. You be a light in the world, and God will take care of the darkness in due time. Because He is the light of the world. And so, you know, Christmas is coming as we prepare. It's a good time to remember that all God did to prepare the way of the Lord. It was a great proclamation by John the Baptist, but even a greater appearance uh, and a greater preparation by God's divine hand upon the course of world history. And beloved, if you can't see it, it's because we're not looking. The same thing is happening today. Don't take your eye off the ball. All right. In the time we got left, which I don't have any time, I just wanted to give you a quick application. I'm going to do this. I'm going to run through this quickly. In verse, chapter 3, look over at Malachi 3.1. It says this, Behold, I will send my messenger. Again, the name, the messenger is the same title as Malachi. And he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord uh, whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Man, there's a lot here. I'm not going to get into all of it this morning. But as we get ready to observe the Lord's Supper next week, we can take some, some of the questions raised by the children of Israel in Malachi in spite of all that God has done, the children of Israel had grown cold and cynical of the God's word and his promises and imp that impacted their worship. So I just want to quickly run you through, because God sends a messenger. He sent Malachi. And of course, then he's going, to send, uh, he's going to send John the Baptist. And he's going to send Jesus Christ himself, right? And so Israel's getting the message. They're getting the word. The question this morning, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, are we getting the word? Let me just have us do a little heart analysis before we leave this morning. And just kind of prepare our hearts. I'm going to run you through the seven questions that the nation of Israel asked in the book of Malachi. It's just kind of a flyover overview. The first question they asked the Lord is, 
Well, how have you loved me? How have you loved me? We saw that already in, in chapter 1 and verse 2. Let's not forget how God loved us. We're going to remember that. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Man, God tells us, don't forget how much I love you. We're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. Wouldn't it be a shame for us to celebrate Thanksgiving with our families and our friends and our church family and then roll up into next Sunday and forget to remember the Lord? Man, let's not do that. Let's remember the Lord. Let's make that a priority in our heart. Let's remember him. Let's remember how he loved us. Let's not forget that. There was a time when we were without hope, without strength, without Christ. We were aliens in this world, man. But God has grafted us in. He has made us a new creature in Christ Jesus if you're saved. And if you're not saved this morning, God loves you. And he wants you to be part of his family. He wants you to be part of something that is way bigger than us, way bigger than yourself. It's part of his kingdom and his glory and his honor. It's an awesome thing. So let's not forget about that. And then also the next question they ask is, how have we despised your name? God's like, are you kidding me? In verse 6 of chapter 1, as a son honoreth his father and a servant his master, if then, if, if, if then I be a father, where's my honor? Who's your daddy, man? If you call me your father, then where's my, where's my honor? And if I be a master, where's my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts, O priest that despise my name and and you say, wherein have, you despi- have we despised thy name? We're, oh, God, we've never despised thy name. What are you t- God's like, what are you talking about? Do we call God Father but honor him in disobedience? Oh, God, my Father, let's pray in his name, but let's live like hell Monday through Sunday or Saturday. Man, that's dishonorable to him. Let's not be like that. We all know Ephesians 6.1, many of us know, right? Children obey your parents we love to teach our kids that but when we turn it back on us right all of a sudden it's like oh am i obeying the the voice of the lord man i hope so i hope so what a message for the you know it's, it's easy to pick at people that aren't saved people that are lost people that don't know christ to say silly things but what about us that are saved man don't we have a higher standard i think we do we have the standard of god's word we know that we're to love god and we're to love people so we should be about that do we fear man more than God? God points out that the children of Israel were more obedient to their worldly governors. Are you going to give them a sacrifice like you give me? He's like, uh, they're like, uh, 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 no, of course not. Rhetorical questions. You know, one of the things that we can rob God of, that, that you can fool me all day long because I don't know, but we can all do this and we got to make sure we don't do it. Because it affects not only us, it affects our families, it affects the church, it affects the world around us. We can't rob God of his authority. It's just, no, he's in authority, right? You really can't rob God of his authority. But what we do is we take the liberty that he's given us sometimes and we use it to our advantage and we don't use it to glorify him. We don't want to submit to his authority. That's what Israel was doing. They were taking advantage of his grace. It's terrible. Another question they ask is, have you, uh, how have we polluted you? God says, you polluted me. You've offered polluted bread, in verse 7, upon mine altar. And you say, wherein have we polluted thee? And that you say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. He's like, the, the way that you're handling the bread. Boy, there's a me- I can't wait till I get to that message. But uh, there's a whole message there about, this, about the bread of life, the word of God. Of course, he's talking about the show bread in the temple. The literal bread was moldy. And we don't need moldy bread. We need to give God the best. Have we been watering down the word of God in our lives? 
railing against critical text translations, but living them out in our own hearts. Right? Oh, the critical text scholars, they like to twist the word of God. We can rail on them, beat them up all day, but then just ends justifies the means when it comes to us. Us preachers are good at that. Right? So we can't do that. We've got to be honest before God and the sight of men. Right? We've got to be WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. It's got to be true. It's got to be right. It's got to be Christ. Otherwise, this is a joke. Church is a joke. The whole thing's a sham. And the world looks at it and says, what a joke. What a joke. Man, I've seen it. I've been at work and I've seen it happen on multiple occasions. I can see one Christian. He's not a joke. I can see another Christian. He's a joke. And you know who sees it first? The world. Whether, you, whether they say it out loud or not, they're like, that dude, that bulb's lit up. That bulb is out. <laughs> that, that, that thing is hid. There is something wrong with that bulb. It is getting so dim I can't even see Jesus. But that dude over there, that gal over there, man, I, I see something shining from her. Now, they're not going to say that. How do you know that, Brian? Because I was lost. I've been there. I know what it's like. Okay. Then they ask, how, do we, how have we wearied you? Chapter 2, verse 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, can anyone make God tired? Not really. But you know what? They can grieve his heart. And he says, yet you say, wherein have you wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? He's like, man, you, you're exalting everybody but me. What do you mean? How are you? You're wearing me out. I had a friend that used to say that. You make me weak. Have you made empty promises to God? Have I made empty promises to God? I'm sure we all do at times. Have we, have we said one thing but continue to do another? Oh, man, God's like, I'm, I'm tired of that. Anybody ever dealt with someone like that? I promise I'm going to quit. I won't take another drink. I won't do this. I won't do that. And after a while, you're like, okay, man, whatever. You just want them to truly repent. You know it's, no long, it's not an issue of their body. It's an issue of the, the heart. That doesn't mean, by the way, if you're in that situation, because your flesh will take control of you, that's why we have addiction ministry. That's also why if you're on a substance that's controlling your body, like heroin or something, an opioid, an opioid you've got to get some treatment, right? You, but it starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. Because if you try to kick a habit like some of those on your own, you, will, you could die. So you got to be careful with some of that. Just a little word to the wise. But uh, just letting you know, God loves you and so do we. But it starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. And then he says in the seventh verse of chapter 3, even, even from the days of your fathers, ye have gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me. I, I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? How shall we return? Malachi 3, 7. How do I get back? Have you ever given up on God's word? The old book, right? You just give up on getting a new look from the old book, right? You get to, there's a song like that. You get a new look from the old book. I don't remember, but you just give up on it. You're like, you know, the Bible really, it's not enough. I need, I need some, man, I need something else. I need a new drug. I need a psychologist. I need some Splankna. I mean, I need, I need Town and Clown, Clown, Clown and Townsend. I don't know what their names are. I need, I need some psychology. Because, you know, the Bible just, it's not really enough. 
God's enough, but the Bible's not enough. Like there's some, some difference between God's word and the word. It's his mind. What are you talking about? Craziness. The Bible doesn't really contain what I need for faith and practice. Man, I tell you guys, that's where we live in Laodicea. These are things that we can repent of this week so we can be ready next week. How, how, how have we robbed you, they say in verse 8 of chapter 3. Will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? God says, I'm not even going to play here. Tithes and offerings, man. You guys have robbed me. Have you been posing as a giver but really robbing God? Giving God leftovers instead of first fruits? Like instead of the first fruits of thine increase, it's like, uh, well, let's see. What can, after I do this and after I do that and after I do this, well, there's, here, God. Oh, here's a tip. That's all I got left. There's holes in my pocket. It's about priority. Now, this, aren't you glad this applies to Israel and not to us? Given the appearance of piety. Now, let me give you some grace here because you grow in all this. So, I mean, it's even like the song of our heart. It's an attitude. It's what we think about in the morning. It's what we think about when we go to bed. It's, it's what we're doing from, you know, Monday through Saturday as well. It's, 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 the, it's, the, it's the life that we have. I remember the song of my heart used to be Van Halen when I was a kid. I love Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen died a few weeks ago. I was like, wow, he was an amazing guitarist. There was not a, well, there probably was a better guitarist, but that guy was amazing. But, you know, when I was a young Christian, I like to have anthems. I have songs. I'm a music guy. I mean, I don't sing and stuff, but I love to listen to music. And, uh, and so I have these, I, my life was a soundtrack. And one day I'm a young person and I'm wanting to put my first fruits forward. I'm not talking about just financially. I'm just talking about my life. I want my life to be for Jesus. I want, to, I want him to get the first fruits of everything. And so one day I'm running around doing whatever. And I'm a Christian. I'm getting discipled. I'm, you know, I'm obedient. I've been baptized. And I'm just singing. And you many of you heard this story before. But I'm singing, running with the devil. And God's like, hey, Brian, we changed the soundtrack. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, Lord, I'll do that. I started listening to Wayne Watson and Petra and some. I had to change my soundtrack. I just, it was like, man, I had to change my first fruits, the things that I enjoy. I mean, even those things. I'm like, Lord, you can take it. Just, just let me be, you know, man, praise God. Is, is, he the, is God the soundtrack of our life? Or have we allowed other things, other messages to come in? Not everybody's musical like that. But man, don't, the joy of the Lord's our strength. We need to be enjoying Jesus. We need to be thinking about him. And then, have you, have you spoken? Have, the next thing they ask is, how have we spoke against you, Lord? Verse 13. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Have you found yourself saying and it's vain to serve the Lord? It isn't worth it. I think I'll go back to Egypt. Remember when? Man, i got to be honest, guys. I'm guilty of that from time to time. It's easy to look back, isn't it? Back then, it was so good under the bondage of Egypt. It was so good making bricks without straw. No, it wasn't, was it? But sometimes we, we start to long for things that aren't even true. We want to go back into the matrix. Have you found yourself calling good evil and evil good? 
you know, when's the last time you just jumped up and you're like sitting on your chair and you're reading something about Jesus in your Bible because you're putting the first fruits there. It's the first thing you did this morning. And you're reading something and you're like, Woo! Jesus! Yeah! Awesome! Woo! Touched down. I'm just saying. We get excited about a lot of things. And a lot of times it ain't Jesus. Oh, well, you got to be subdued and be holy. I'd rather people get fired up. Let's go, Jesus! Amen. Do we murmur and complain about God's people? God's church? God's servants? Hey, when we do that, we're talking against God. And I say we, we all do it. No, okay, you're better than me. And we should not do that. And so that's why we have the Lord's Supper, isn't it? To deal with all of that stuff. Because the book of Malachi, it's not just about an introduction to Malachi. It's not just about an application of these messages that we've learned. It's also about a decision. decision that we need to make today. The burden of the word of the Lord comes with a decision. Malachi wasn't given this information from the Lord directly. Who cares? I mean, Malachi's a great guy and all, but God's like, let's not worry about Malachi Let's worry about the message that's coming from the Lord because it's a heavy one. And he wants us all to make a decision. He wants us to love him. There's some of us here maybe that we need to consider our love for the Lord this morning. And, you know, the good thing is our, God's so gracious. He'll take us where we're at and he'll help our love grow for him. But we've got to make a decision in our heart. The burden of the sin that we won't forsake will corrupt our relationship with God. Some of us see the coming of the Lord. I want you to, I'm going to finish here. I'm done. But go to chapter 4. We've already read it, but let me just finish up here in verse 4 of chapter 4. It says, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to get into all the applications of that with Elijah and John the Baptist and all of that. But I'll just say, I'll tell you, in that passage, it says the great and dreadful day. There's two groups of people that is addressed in chapter 3. There's, a, there's those who will not repent, and then there's those who will. There's those who will be judged harshly and those that will be a remnant, that will be looking forward for the Lord's coming. This is the tribulation context. But in a devotional aspect for the church of God, as we wrap this up this morning, I just want you to think about that. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of Christ is coming. There's going to be a day we're going to be caught up. We're going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, not many days hence. And when you think about that, is that something that we're like, oh, I'm ready for that. I'm getting ready for that. Of course, none of us are like, I'm ready for that. I I get that. There's a little intrepidation. But is our life... Are, are, we, are we looking forward to being with our Lord? Are we looking forward? Are we living a life that, that represents God, a heart for God, a heart that is ready to be united with Him? Are we living in fear? And it's a terrible day to us. It's a scary thing to be in the presence of the Lord Almighty because we know that we're not right. 
Beloved, we don't have to wait till we get to the third heaven to get right with God. Today is the day of the Lord. Today is the day to get right with God. Today is the day to take His promises seriously. Because there's a day coming and it isn't long. And we will give an account. And beloved, you're the best church in the world. So I don't know, I'm just preaching the atmosphere. But I'm just saying, man, as a pastor, I want to be ready. I want you all to be ready. And wouldn't it be right? Let's get ready for the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, let's get our account settled now. Let's get before God now and confess sin. Let's get with God today and say, God, put it away. Forgive me. Help me not to go back to it. Help me to get the accountability I need. Help me to love you with my whole heart and not half-heartedly. Let's get real with Jesus. Amen? Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this book.